If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Hey, Fidelity. What's it cost to invest with the Fidelity app? Start with as little as $1 with no account fees or trade commissions on U.S. stocks and ETFs. Hmm, that's music to my ears. I can only talk. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Zero account fees apply to retail brokerage accounts only. Zero dollar commission applies to online U.S. equity trades and ETFs and retail Fidelity accounts. Sell order assessment fee not included. Some account types and securities excluded. Details at Fidelity.com slash commissions. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hey, welcome to Ikea, where even this desk is circular. Huh, how so? Looks pretty rectangular to me. It's because we're always looking to repair, reuse, and we love our products, like buying back your Ikea items for store credit, or shop our as-is section for great deals. You can even order free spare parts. Get on the circular path for a more sustainable future. Still a rectangle. Get started at ikea-usa.com slash circular. Visit ikea-usa.com slash circular for as-is information and buyback and resale terms and conditions. Spare parts not available for all products. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Later this week, Royal Ceremony and Spectacle will be deployed in full force for the coronation of King Charles. But this latest lavish display is nothing new, because British monarchs have long used pomp and pageantry to reinforce their power and popularity. Dr Alice Hunt is a historian of monarchy at the University of Southampton, and she told me more about what ceremony and ritual have offered monarchs down the centuries. Today we're going to be talking about the British monarchy's relationship with ceremony and spectacle over the centuries. Why has pomp and pageantry been so important to royal figures in history? Pomp and pageantry has always been kind of part of the kind of arsenal of of, of monarchy for a long time, and particularly because it's a way of broadcasting their their wealth and therefore their status and therefore their their power. We have to remember that I suppose that the monarchy hasn't always been as visible as it is now. So to be able to see the monarchy, they had to kind of parade and process. There are practical reasons too. They processed because they moved around a lot. That was the only way you could see them, some more or less than others. And this was therefore a you know, really good opportunity for them to, to show themselves to the people and to kind of instill and foster loyalty, obedience, affection, as well as reminding everyone, you know, we're the monarchs and uh, we're pretty powerful. 
And of course, we're having this conversation because it's about to be the coronation of King Charles. Can you tell us a bit about the function that coronations in particular have served over time beyond, of course, just um, announcing that somebody is officially the monarch? Yeah, I mean, the coronation is the most important ceremony um, of, of a monarch's reign and one of the most spectacular. They've evolved over you know, over a thousand, thousand or so years. The function of a coronation, though, has 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 changed. You know, the, at, at the beginning, the the coronation would be to uh, to actually kind of make a king, particularly sort of under the Anglo Anglo Saxon kings, they were elected, and they needed a kind of king making ceremony. And then the coronation became bound up in the in the ter- church in the liturgy of the church. The understanding was that the monarch was divinely appointed. This began in kind of the 10th and 10th century and that they were hereditary so they were monarch by divine right and the ceremony the ceremony of coronation then was to to confer as well as confirm this kind of sacred status and really at the heart of the coronation was the anointing ceremony and this became the 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 kind of real moment that uh, an heir was turned into a monarch. Even though with hereditary monarchy, the, the monarch would rule on the day of the successors of the predecessor's death, there was still this idea that it was the coronation that made the king. And that has persisted and still persists, I think, that King Charles is not is not going to really be king until he's actually crowned. And how far back can we trace this relationship with, with ceremony and pomp um, and spectacle? The ceremony of coronation, the kind of the, the, the pomp sort of grew up during the kind of med- medieval and the, and, the, and the Tudor period, particularly the Tudors loved putting on a great, a great show. So at the, the coronation of Henry VIII, for example, with his wife, Catherine of Aragon, this was the really kind of the, the big establishment of the Tudor dynasty. Henry VII, his father, had been crowned very quickly after the defeat of Richard III on, on Bosworth Field. That was a kind of necessity to kind of secure him. Um, but then the kind of the, the show of the Tudor dynasty with the son, Henry VIII, and with the wife, um, and all the promises that that would bring of children and succession and stability and continuity, um, they had a kind of big, a big, a big ceremony with a, a kind of elaborate procession. Um, so the Tudors and the Stuarts, to a certain extent, um, really uh, went for it with, uh, with with the kind of show and the spectacle. Are there any other really notable uh, monarchs when it comes to ceremony? Who else have been some of the the best people at deploying ceremony and spectacle to bolster their power. So I've mentioned uh, Henry VIII and he, his daughter learned from him, Elizabeth I. She understood the value of needing to be seen. Um, she enjoyed going on progress. She would uh, process with her kind of entire household, dressed beautifully, um, and, and many of her kind of the ceremonies of her reign were you know, beautifully kind of choreographed, not just by her. I mean, these ceremonies were kind of collaborative. The procession before her coronation was a double act between the court and the city, um, and the city kind of would put, put on shows for her. It was a way of them kind of turning London into a kind of theatre, um, and she was the, the the lead the lead actress and processing through London as a kind of stage. 
um, with her city, welcoming her, um, talking to her, praising her and advising her as well. I mean, often these ceremonies were moments for the public to talk to the monarch as well as for the monarch to put themselves on show. But that is a really interesting question about the audience for these ceremonies. Who is this for? Because obviously before the reign of Queen Elizabeth II, fairly recently, these were not events that would have been televised, but they were events that were intended for ordinary people, not just the royal court. Is that correct? Yes. So um, with the example of the coronation, the the ceremony inside the church was private and you know not, not many people would, would see that inside the abbey. So the the ceremonies that happened outside, you know, the day before, that would be a chance for the public to catch a glimpse of the new monarch. And by all accounts, streets were were filled, crowds pressing against the kind of rails as 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 we still see. And they would be written up, the, these events, increasingly so, you know, reports by ambassadors writing back to Venice, for example, just you know, describing what had happened, and ordinary people writing accounts of it in their diaries, you know, saying, you know, today we saw the monarch, and it's really interesting to, to kind of see the kinds of things that they, they pick up on. Because this relationship between pomp and power is an interesting one, isn't it? Because, for example, we don't have prime ministers processing through the streets when they um, take up the post. What is it about the monarchy, do you think, that that has thrived off ceremony and spectacle? That's a really good question. You know, why, why do they why do they need to have so much um, kind of theatre around them? And I think that it is it is to do with their their power. Um, and when they did have absolute power, a way to broadcast this would be through lavish spectacle, not just for the public, but for people observing abroad as well, you know, for foreign powers to be able to see that there was a kind of relationship between spectacle and expense and military might. But it doesn't have to be. Um, and it does seem that certain countries have a particular relationship with spectacle and some have a monarchy and have done away with it. Don't feel that the a monarchy needs to um, have this, this, these kind of rituals and this tradition around it. That's something that is really, I think, unique to, to this country. It waned a lot. After the, the execution of Charles I, ceremony kind of came back with abandon with the restoration of Charles II, with this kind of need to show that the monarchy was strong and, and there again. But then in the 18th century, the ceremonies became less accepted, I think, um, often sometimes due to the personalities, but also the cost seemed a bit extravagant. They were at the time thinking, we don't really want the monarch to be as powerful as they are. One of the ways in which we can reduce their power is to reduce the spectacle. And then that changes when they, their power does become limited, they then think, well, actually, we could have a great spectacle because then it's about something else. It's about the nation. It's about our constitution. It's about these symbols. That's really interesting what you say about a backlash, basically, to spectacle. That is something I wanted to ask you about. Could you give us some specific examples of where um, attempts to stage really lavish events just did not go over well with the people? 
Well, William III is an example of a of a king who who didn't want to spend money on the coronation, didn't even really want one, actually. And this was in, in reaction to his his predecessors, the Georges, who had used spectacle a bit too lavishly. The Hanoverians were, were, were kind of mocked quite a bit. They were often kind of lampooned, subject to kind of in kind of cartoons and laughed at a bit. And one of the ways they could do that was through their kind of use of use use of spectacle and queen victoria was the same she she didn't particularly want to put herself um on on show it's not to say that people didn't kind of turn out for them and enjoy them but they were these ceremonies but they they there were anxieties around around the kind of costs and things Queen Victoria is a really interesting case, isn't she? Because, of course, after the death of Prince Albert, she retreated from public life. But that had a negative impact on her popularity. The people felt like perhaps they weren't getting their money's worth from her as a monarch. Could you tell us a bit about that sentiment? Mm, mm. Yes, that's interesting that the monarch needs needs to be seen. And um, it was Elizabeth II who said, I need to be seen to be believed. And I think that is absolutely something that the modern moral family hold on to, that in order to keep being relevant, they need to be seen. And for for Queen Victoria, yes, this, this withdrawal, even though they didn't want the kind of huge, lavish spectacle, they needed to see that their monarch was there and present and connected to them. I mean, these are moments that, you know, inspire affection and obedience. And Queen Victoria still held held quite a lot of power. I mean, the constitutional monarchy was still developing. And for her to be absent would be would be equivalent to you know, someone who had a political holding political office being absent. She wasn't just a symbol at this point. So her visibility was was important. And when she did come back with a staged uh, put on a fantastic kind of golden jubilee for her, we then start to begin to see ceremony changing and becoming more like the ceremonies I think we're familiar with under the later reign, later years of Victoria's reign, picked up on by her son, Edward VII, who I think really understood then the value of a visible monarchy and a monarchy that looked old, that looked connected to the past. This kind of idea of kind of continuity, um, the connections with the military, the connections with the empire, and the kind of tightly choreographed ceremony that we see now was, was something that he really cultivated, Edward VII. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match 
with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Because it's a difficult balance, isn't it? As you say, on the one hand, there's this idea that the monarchy needs to be a symbol of continuity and draw on the past. But then on the other, the role of the monarchy has been massively transformed, especially in in the era of the constitutional monarchy. There's almost a kind of inverse relationship between, we're thinking more now about kind of the last hundred years or so, an inverse relationship between a monarch's power and the, the majesty of ceremony, because there's no there's no kind of threat really it's it's the the idea is that they are symbols this is not personal political power but the power they have is to represent the country to um pull together the country at certain points and if we think of an example like elizabeth ii's coronation this was a um, a moment when, you know, she is a symbol, a kind of figurehead. And what people could do and what the media could do and what the palace could do was project onto her their needs at that moment, which was to bring the country together. This is post-war, to reflect on the, the way the empire had changed, to uh, foster kind of hope and to look to the future. She was a young queen with a future ahead of her and a young family. I think even though ceremonies kind of look the same, the reasons we might want them or the work they might do um, has changed according to context. And that is something that's both kind of carefully curated by the palace, but also is something that's kind of brought to those ceremonies by by the public, by the media, by those kind of reading reading into it. Opposition to spectacle and ceremony, can you plot when that has emerged against you know backdrops of for example certain circumstances like war or economic depression is there a correlation there when the nation is struggling they don't want a big ceremony or is it more to do with the royal figure involved i think personality always plays a part actually um certain monarchs who uh like like performance and, and 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 like ceremony, and others who seem to shy away from it. Charles I didn't particularly like going on show, and we've talked about Victoria. Correlation between what's going on and a big event. Well, I think there are examples of of both kinds. Um, so Elizabeth II's coronation, war torn, uh, poverty stricken Britain, but everyone wanted it needed a big celebration and needed the country kind of being pulled together. So that's an example when it would seem appropriate that there would be a kind of big national 
celebration of that kind. The situation now is slightly, you know, the, the cost of living crisis is, is, is slightly different, I think. That's a different kind of economic climate, which I think does put pressure on 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 these ceremonies. Different kind of values. So in the kind of late sort of 18th century and in the 19th century, just of the sense that ostentation was uh, not not quite right, not proper. So another example of, of a kind of relationship between ceremony and war, while well, kind of coming out of the civil wars um, in the 1650s, Cromwell used ceremony to, to kind of legitimise the, the Republic and the non-monarchical regime. And Charles II has absolutely used it. And England was not in a good economic state. But the ostentation of his coronation in 1661 was seen as a legitimate way to celebrate the return of monarchy. Something I wanted to ask you about was the role of religion in these traditions and these ceremonies. How central has the church been to royal ceremony over the years? Um, it's an excellent question and it's so important and it's something that we don't talk about that much. You know, with the jubilees, it's it's about the processions afterwards as opposed to the actual ceremony, that the, 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 the Thanksgiving ceremony. But the monarchy in this country is intimately bound up with, with the church and the, the coronation is, I think, the one moment where, the, where that's going to be really brought home to us because this is a ceremony in which the religion and the monarchy are brought together. It's not just a, a thanking God. This is a, the church that is actually making the king the king. It is a deeply religious service. It will be very solemn. The Archbishop of Canterbury will conduct it in a very solemn manner, and I think Charles will take it extremely seriously. Um, this is a pact between monarch and God. He swears an oath. And he promises to reign, you know, with mercy and peacefully. But actually what he's doing is he's kind of making a promise before God. And he will be facing the altar throughout the coronation. It's it's absolutely about the religious underpinnings of monarchy in this country, that there is a, a sense that they are divinely appointed, which no one really believes now. But it's still there and the ceremony will articulate that. So while many of these traditions and these ritualistic elements of ceremony have remained the same or evolved slowly for hundreds of years, in the last hundred years, the landscape in which all of this is happening has changed beyond recognition. Could you tell us a bit about the 20th century and the 21st century and how you think that has really changed the game for monarchs and ceremony? Yes, the fact that everyone is able to watch and scrutinise these ceremonies has probably ensured the survival of, of the monarchy to a certain extent. It is an opportunity to watch a great piece of theatre, to see regalia, to see costumes, to see, to watch rituals kind of being, being, uh, being acted out that have, that have been the same for, for many hundreds of years. It's like watching kind of living history. And for the monarchy, this is incredibly necessary. It keeps them famous. It keeps the, it, it keeps alive that sense that they are somehow kind of special through the, these kind of extraordinary rituals and spectacles. It kind of elevates them. And 
this this sense that there is like a little bit of magic there and the religion has a part to play in that they said uh, after queen mary who was crowned alongside george v the uh, a newspaper commented that it was as if some extraordinary transformation had taken place and for people to then be able to witness that to be able to see it and replay it is you know really important and they control the narrative to to a certain extent the palace here you know they they need the images they need the media to make them famous make them keep them recognizable to keep us talking about them because as symbols their value their worth is in being recognized and known and being wanted to look at be watched where do you think that the monarchy would have been today if it had, you know, eschewed ceremony and spectacle several hundred years ago? We could easily, I think, have a monarchy as in uh, the Netherlands, for example, where there it's more of a kind of swearing in kind of ceremony. I think the, we could easily have not had the revival of ceremony that happened at the end of the 19th century and then kind of fostered by Edward VII at the beginning of the 20th, then learnt by his uh, heirs ever since and, and copied. Um, we could have carried on like they did in the kind of 18th century with them being a bit bumbling and a bit messy, a bit too expensive, but and a bit shambolic. Certain countries... When the monarch did have a lot of power, um, Spain, for example, did away with the coronation for a long time ago. So I don't think it's necessary for the monarchy in this country, but I think it's a, a very valuable weapon that they have in their arsenal. That's interesting. I half thought that you might say the monarchy wouldn't be here today without it, <laughs> but you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I, don't think, I, think, I don't think that's true. I think we fear that. But I don't think that's the case. What do you think that the future of royal ceremony is? Do you think we'll still have these incredibly lavish spectacles in 100 years' time? I think this coronation that we're going to see in May will be really interesting for that because I think this has got to really set the tone for the coronations that we might see afterwards. So I think it, it would be really interesting to see how they kind of move the ceremony into in, properly into the 21st century of course, there'll be echoes of Elizabeth II's coronation, but I think it will also try to do something different. I mean, it's the most modern thing about this ceremony is, you know, we've got a a, a, a queen who wasn't the first woman he married, a kind of blended family coming together who will play a part in the ceremony. They will try to address um matters about of cost I think how to make this look legitimate how how to make it feel necessary for the nation and for our constitution and for how we feel about ourselves without it actually making people think why are we spending money on this at the moment because that that I think will is something that's going to persist you know how how do we justify the costs of these of, of the of these events it's become part of the kind of identity of the British monarchy that they follow tradition, that there is continuity and stability, that things have largely remained unchanged, even though the world has changed completely, un, you know, unrecognisably around them. That That's a very powerful story that is told. You know, this is about precedent. 
Caesareans have always been about precedent. We really saw this with Charles II's coronation back in 1661, where the idea that monarchy was unchanged and had not been, had, had always been there, um, was so important for, the, for them to get across, because of course it wasn't true. This was after 10 years of a, a republic. Monarchy was fallible. It's a story that I think comes from a place of fragility, that, you know, precedent and tradition um, and stability are absolutely fundamental to the monarchy. And this, it's an image because actually I think we, they, as I, as I said earlier, we don't necessarily need them to, to repeat all these, all these rituals, but it is a, it is a, it is a sense that tradition is kind of steadying, that we are connected to our past, um, that we treasure our past, um, that we've kind of look, look after it. It's different. It's unique. It's unusual to be able to kind of look into the past at these ceremonies, to, to be able to kind of collapse time in that way. And finally, if you could attend or witness one royal ceremony from history, what would you choose? It doesn't necessarily have to be the most successful. You know, it could be one that went wrong. It could be the most lavish. It could be the most strange and bizarre. That's up to you. Um, the one I would I, I would like to witness um, is Elizabeth I because there's something happened at that ceremony which we, we're not quite sure what it was, um, a bit of a scandal, and it was all around whether the Archbishop of Canterbury celebrated mass or in a Protestant or a Catholic way, and we're not quite sure what happened and. The reason we're not quite sure what happened is because at that moment, Elizabeth I sort of hid herself from, from view and the accounts are really contradictory. And it was really crucial what happened around whether uh, this was a kind of Catholic or a reformed ceremony because everyone was watching, all eyes were on England and her at the time to see what was going to happen. And she deliberately fudged it. So I'd like to go back to that to be able to, you know, to work out actually what, what, what did happen and what did she think when she was anointed with that horrible Catholic oil, which she criticised later in her reign. And yeah, that, that would be the one I'd go back to. That was Dr Alice Hunt. Alice has written a feature on this subject for the May issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. And on Friday... Historian Tracy Borman will be joining us to offer up some do's and don'ts from coronations gone by. So tune back in for that. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley.